Welcome to the podcast series of the College of Education and Integrative Studies. My name is Jeff Pass. I'm the Dean of the College here at Cal Poly Pomona. And our guest today is Dr. Alvaro Huerta. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Huerta, you have many, many projects going on, and we'll spend the whole time talking about it. Um, but one primary interest that I think would be uh, something that would appeal to the general public is your work uh, with DACA students, with the Dreamers. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us what you're doing. Yes, uh, this is something that's very important. Um, actually, when I was a student at UCLA uh, many moons ago, uh, we were organizing uh, issues about immigration and undocumented students. But at the time, it wasn't something that uh, was very popular like it is today. Uh, so we're at UCLA and the chancellor decided to cut the financial aid for undocumented students because they would actually give uh, under Leticia A, they would give financial aid. So we ended up having a hunger strike. And for us, it wasn't an issue of while well, they're undocumented or not. We didn't see it that way. It was because we're student activists. It was more like there are friends and people that we know. And while we were doing this hunger strike, it lasted over 10 days. I wasn't part of the hunger strike because I'm too skinny. Okay. I get dizzy between lunch and dinner, but I was one of the organizers. And as, because of that, some of the friends that we were organizing with, uh, they themselves were undocumented and we didn't even know. So previously, if you were undocumented, there really weren't serious repercussions as when you were part of the university system. Right, right. And it, it wasn't an issue. People weren't, it, it wasn't some, it was actually better because it was, there was no publicity, so when people were undocumented, you wouldn't know, or they wouldn't even say anything. Uh, so now that the undocumented students have received a lot of attention, and I think a lot has to do because of them themselves. Like I see the dreamers, the undocumented students, I see them as like the freedom writers of the, the 1960s, you know, the African-American and white students that went to the South to integrate the South and, and to fight against... Uh, Seg uh, segregation and to fight against Jim Crow uh, and things of that nature. So a lot of the movement with the Dreamers, it, it didn't come from the activists or the lawyers or scholars like myself. It came from them themselves in, in fighting and demanding their rights and coming out and saying, I'm undocumented, I'm, I'm not afraid. Uh, you know, I was born in this country, so I feel I have a privilege that I take advantage of in the sense that I say whatever I want, utilizing my, my free speech rights, and nothing's gonna happen to me, right? So I can fight and I can argue against these policies that impact uh, undocumented, and nothing's gonna happen to me. I mean, the- Compared to the uh, compared students to, no, yeah, themselves who the could students be deported. Themselves. Right. I mean, I grew up in East LA, the worst they could do is deport me back to East LA. <laughs> so for me, it's not an issue. Right. But for them doing the same thing, it's now they're exposing themselves. The, the, the consequences are great. So by playing a, a role, you can help to protect those students yes. by taking on the mantle of leadership and, and you taking the hits rather than right. the students themselves. So what exactly are you doing for these uh, young people? Well, in the classroom and, and overall, whenever I speak, I, I try to argue this, this framework of looking at immigrants not as immigrants, uh, because immigrant has become a dirty word, but, but as human beings, uh, and trying to make them feel that they have a place and that nobody in this country uh, is illegal. 
nobody in the world is illegal. I mean, it's just the status, but that's not who you are. So for me, the first thing is to educate people and to try to focus not on what separates us, but what, what brings us together, like our commonalities. Um, like I was born here, like I said, my brother was born in Tijuana, but it was just by chance. I'm not more special or, or because I was born here than him. It was just by chance I was born here and he was born there. So a lot of our status has nothing to do with anything, but by chance you were born in certain part and, and then now you're here. Uh, so for me, a lot of the work has to do with, with how we frame the argument, uh, how we make people feel. Uh, and when I talk about this in class, in general about immigration, mental health, uh, violence, poverty, things that I've experienced growing up, and do it in a way where people should not be ashamed of it, then the first thing that happens is people open up. You know, sometimes they'll say it in class or, or I'm documented or in my office hours. So you're able to deal with the issues like at a human level. And part of, and then also creating a, an environment that's conducive to, to undocumented students here at Cal Poly. So what would that be? What would make the environment more conducive? Well, I think Cal Poly is doing a great job already mm -hmm. because we're diverse. Like in certain areas of the, of the country where the, the schools are not as diverse, undocumented students, they don't feel welcomed or they feel, because let's say they might be the only Latino or Latina, just speak, speaking of Latinos and Latinas, because there's other, other groups, they feel a sense of alienation. But in, in Cal Poly, because of our diversity, I think undocumented students, they don't have that same sense of anxiety that they do uh, elsewhere. But that's not an accident. Uh, President Coley right. and the chancellor of the CSU has taken steps to create that environment. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And, and I, I think that that is the type of work I do, and, and I applaud the work that yourself and President Coley and, and the chancellor, in creating an environment where our, our diversity is embraced, our differences are embraced, and not just in race and class, but also sexual orientation, religion, or lack thereof. And then also the question of citizenship or, or, or lack of citizenship. Um, so that, that's one thing that I do. Uh, the other thing, I write a lot about immigration. I write a lot about, I have a new book coming out on, on defending immigrants, on Latino and Latina immigrants. So part of it is to, is to make the argument that we should treat you know, immigrants first like as people on the move, people that, that are, are, are driven. I mean, immigrants in general are driven self-motivated, uh, they have all the characteristics that it takes for this country to, to get ahead in the future. Uh, and this is not something that's new. This has been going on for right. centuries. Right. For millennia, really. People have moved around from place to place. It's only recently that it's become more of a political issue driven by xenophobia, perhaps? Right. Xenophobia and also the color of their skin. I mean, where they're coming from. I mean, if you have Canadians coming over, it's not considered a problem. I mean, we're not talking about building a wall in between Canada and the United States. Or if they're coming from Switzerland or France. And then there's also the money issue, right? So if you, if you come with a lot of money, uh, if you're an immigrant coming from any place of Latin America, if you're, if you're rich and you come with a lot of money, they, you're not seen as a burden. You're actually welcomed in this country. Uh, the doors are open because they want that investment. Uh, I mean, one of the most brilliant men and women, the, of, Today is, is Elon Musk. I mean, it's, you know, he has his other issues going on with personality, but he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And he's an immigrant. Right. 
I mean, in these ideas, I mean, with, with uh, Tesla, with the SpaceX and, and pa solar panels, these brilliant ideas come from immigrants. And we need to embrace that. Right. And we need to cultivate the ones that exist. So when I see young students today, like the Dreamers at Cal Poly, and some that don't qualify, you know, they have the Dream Act and some that don't qualify for DACA. I see them as, like, if we, if we treat them right, if we give them what they need, that's the, the next Elon Musk right there. It's, right. So they, the immigrants in, as a whole, uh, with one or two success stories, can really cover all of the possible expenses uh, that they would bring along with them. Right. Although I, I think it's people underestimate how much immigrants actually contribute to the economy. Right. Uh, that's not a story that's well told. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And then that's another thing I talk about is is try to debunking a lot of the myths about immigration. Um, immigrants don't qualify for federal assistance, or uh, they don't they don't qualify for Medicare, uh, Social Security. So they're being taxed and they're contributing to the system. They're giving, but they're not getting back. Um, it was, you know, Bill Clinton that, that prevented immigrants with the Welfare Reform Act from uh, not allowing immigrants to qualify for these type of programs that I benefited from when I was a kid, or my family did. But we, we see that even though immigrants contribute greatly to the country, uh, from Latin America, from anywhere from Mexico to Honduras to Haiti, uh, you know, very entrepreneurial, very uh, self-reliant, uh, very community, family-oriented. It's not just about them, it's about their families too. Uh, so a lot of them, when they're here, and this we see this with the Irish, the Italians, when they first arrived, uh, let's say in the 1800s, you know, they send money home. Uh, so it's, it's that, that sense of community, the sense of, of being family-oriented that Americans don't have. Because in America, it's all about the individuals, individualism. And the immigrant, uh, it's about the family, it's about the community. And sometimes that family, the community, might be a burden to the student, right? Because let's say you have a DACA student or a first-generation student, parents are immigrants. So a lot of times they have to drop out or, or they have to work extra to support their parents or, they, or their women, uh, uh, Latina, for example, sometimes they have to go back and help take care of their kids and of, the, of their siblings and you know, mm -hmm. like these, sometimes these gender roles. So they, they have, the dreamers of today, the, the undocumented students, have a lot of burdens that... It, and obstacles that they have to overcome. So for me, when, when I see the fact that they're here and they overcame all these obstacles, it says a lot about them. Right. So you have a, a unique uh, mm -hmm. position here at Cal Poly Pomona mm -hmm. in that you're not just a professor of ethnic and women's studies in my college, but you're also a member of the uh, architecture and environmental mm -hmm. studies right. uh, college. Um, so what role do you play in contributing to public policy mm -hmm. related to this issue? Well, for one is just the arguing in, in writing policies and in, in, uh, not policies, but writing uh, social commentaries. Um, also the issue of uh, advocating for just laws and, and looking at cases for like street vendors. And this is something we talked about in, in the last interview. Uh, how when immigrants are being criminalized for for behavior that's licit. I mean, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with selling tamales or tacos or hot dogs, you know, with the, ba the bacon, you know, maybe you get a heart attack. But other than that, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that type of behavior. 
but you need activists, you need scholars, you need people to, to force cities to regulate versus criminalize. And this is something that was part of, in, in California, like street vending has become legalized, or there's laws that prevent cities from criminalizing that behavior. Uh, so that was one of the campaigns that I was part of uh, at, a, at a public policy level. And one of the things that I try to teach my students and also teach other faculty members, because they need to, to learn as well, is that to use their privilege as university students and the knowledge that they're, that they're gaining and put that into practice uh, and in a constructive way. And one of the ways to do that is to, is to advocate for this type of legislation that, that is able to legalize street vending or there was a certain time when immigrants, undocumented students, for example, couldn't, they paid outstate tuition even though they're residents of California. So it had to take, there was a certain law that passed and a certain uh, legislature, uh, Marco Fireball had passed away, that had passed the law that, that allowed for students to receive an uh, in-state tuition. So th that's the type of, those are the type of issues that I'm interested in like at the public policy level uh, to support legislation that, that supports immigrants, that supports uh, families that, that are part of immigrants, because immigrants are not these like marginal actors. They're not like these people that are, okay, the immigrants are over here and the citizens are over here. And we're, we're all part of the same community. Right. And I noticed uh, that you've uh, done some work, recent work, uh, advocating for STEM education or yes, science, yes. technology, engineering, and math education. Uh, tell us about, uh, it's a personal crusade for you. Right. A lot of the things that, that I do is, they're kind of related to, to my own background. You know, I come from a large Mexican family. There's 10 of us. I have 10 uncles and aunts and 100 first cousins. Half of my family at one point were undocumented. Half of them were immigrants. Half of them were citizens. Uh, and one of the, the passions that I've had growing up, I mean, I was the first to go to, my fam to, go to college in my family. Not just in the nuclear family. I'm talking, we're talking like about 1,000 people here, you know. <laughs> You know, went to college, went to UCLA in, in 1985. That was a long time ago. And, you know, grew up in housing projects. And the only reason I went to college, the only reason, because I was good in math. That was the only reason. Uh, when it came to reading and writing, I was behind. Um, I wasn't reading at grade level. Not because there was any issues with me, but I wasn't being taught uh, at the inner city public schools that I attended. Uh, we weren't required to do papers or anything like that, homework. There were lower expectations. Lower, yes. No, I never, the only paper I was assigned from K to 12 was a two-page paper, mm. double space. And only, I was only assigned one book, Steinbeck. You know, it's like, luckily they had a lot of pictures. So I was able to get through it. But because I was good in math, it, it just came natural to me. It wasn't something like I studied. It just, it was, it just something came natural. That allowed me to, that was like my ticket out of the projects or the, the housing projects that I grew up in. It's kind of like the boxers or the football players. That's like their, their ticket out of the, the ghetto or the barrio. For me, it was, it was math. Um, but when I was in high school, I, there was this competition, and it was a calculus competition. And I wasn't supposed to be in it. It was supposed to be someone else, but they, they got nervous and they, they quit. So they, I was like their, the bench player, the backup. So I ended up winning the competition. It was part of the MESA um, group at Occidental College, but they cheated me. I got robbed. How did you get robbed? What happened? Well, what happened is our school was, uh, was Wilson High School in East LA, or, and then the other school was Franklin, and the judges from Franklin High School 
they cheated. They they gave the the first prize to their students. So when it was announced about the competition, it was me and another student. We didn't. We weren't even mentioned. So a month later, the the person in charge of the the MESA program at, at Wilson announced that, you know, Alvaro and you know the other student were were the winners of this calculus contest. And I was like shocked. I, I couldn't believe it. So that that I, I felt bad because you know they had robbed me of, of my fifteen minutes of fame. You know, that, you could have had the glory of going up on the stage right, yeah, and shaking hands. Yeah, but um. So I ended up going to UCLA. I did apply to Cal Poly, Pomona in math, and then San Luis Obispo too, and, and Cal State LA. But because UCLA had a football team, I wanted to go to UCLA because that was the only thing I know I knew about college back then. Uh, but it didn't. I, it, we're, we're talking 1985. I was, you know, Mexican American, you know, Chicano. Literally, uh, the classes at UCLA, the 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 pre-calculus classes, you're talking about 300 students, three, four hundred students. In a section. In in a lecture. Yeah. The lecture. Big in auditorium. A, big auditorium. Four in the calculus, four hundred students. Wow. I was the only one, the only uh Chicano of the entire, you know, four hundred students at one point. And in the entire college, I, there was probably like two of us. And I was the only one that came from welfare and housing projects. And your explanation for that is partly because of the K twelve education system. The, right. That just wasn't uh, pushing math hard enough and helping students succeed. Right, definitely. And, and not motivating the low expectations. So that, that environment, what I experienced, it made me feel, you feel alienated. You feel like you don't belong. So I dropped out of that program and went into history. I was, also became an activist, so that had something to do with it because we're, we're protesting against apartheid in South Africa. Right. Against U.S. involvement in Central we, America, we don't see a lot of mathematicians on the front lines of social <laughs> movements. Right, and then, then yeah, it's hard to keep up with the with the calculus and and being protest at the same time. So that experience of me not like not fulfilling my original dreams of being a mathematician, you know, thirty plus years later, I, I reflected on that and I wrote about it. And part of it was just to tell my story because it's, it's an interesting story, but also to shed light on the fact that. The universities and the institutions itself, higher education, in in public K to twelve, they need to do a better job in in recruiting uh, Latinos and Latinas and other racialized communities. And you have some very, I think, uh, provocative ideas for mm -hmm. going forward. What are some of them? Well, some of them is that we should we should give the university professors um, service credit and to to go into the elementary schools to teach them. Uh, so that they can see role models at, at that level. Uh, we should be able to fund uh, graduate students that are Latinos and Latinas, especially working class, uh, to get PhDs in, in math. Uh, and then with the idea of going back to the community, teaching at the high school level, at the university level. Uh, there's studies that have shown that when you're taught by someone that, that looks like you, then you're, you're able to get more motivated uh, you're able to see yourself in, in the position. Right? Uh, so for a long time, and it continues to the, the present, we, we see also discrimination against gender in terms of women in math and, and engineering and science. Uh, but places like Google and Facebook and all these different uh, Silicon Valley in general, it's very um, male-dominated. Uh, you don't see that many women, especially at the higher level. You don't see that many minorities. 
uh, or African-Americans, Latinos and Latinas. So I feel in general, we need to diversify these fields, especially to reflect the population that we're serving. So how do you respond to critics who would say that that would be race-based favoritism? You know, that, that's part of the argument. The other argument is the quota. There's like, well, we're going to argue for quotas. It's actually, we're, it's, it's more than anything is, is, these type of programs is to undo a system of racism throughout history that has prevented minority communities to, to compete at an equal level. Uh, so one thing, and we see this as a big scandal right now with education, you know, with these affluent parents paying, you know, tens of, hundreds of thousands of dollars for their kids to go to places like USC. I went to UCLA, so I don't think highly of USC, but, and you see that part of it is that the, the fix is in at that level. But also the fix is in for privileged parents because it's, with people with means send their kids to private schools that allow them to get better education. Or hire tutors. Hire tutors, and then smaller classrooms. You know, you have your prep tutors for the SATs, for the personal statements. Uh, and then I have the advantage that parents went to college. So you have all this modern, already there's a disadvantage. Right. So for me, these type of programs is to, the, the, the playing field is not leveled. We need to level it. Right. And we need to like raise all boats. And at this point, it's, it's like this. So the, and I've seen it even with my own son and the advantages that he has with my wife, you know, graduating from UCLA and getting her master's and being an educator herself in us passing down that knowledge to him. And unfortunately, if you're working class, if you're an immigrant, uh, if you're from poor rural communities, you, you don't have that. And that puts you at a disadvantage. Uh, so we have no choice as a country, uh, as, as, and as institutions of higher education, to invest in these type of programs to, to create a full opportunity for everybody. Right. And the society is already expending a lot of money in education, in improving the quality of the schools. So if this is a technique that works, in which we can raise the performance of students who weren't doing so well, right. it sounds like a good investment. Right. Yeah, and I, I admit I, I have a bias. You know, you know my bias is, is people like the way I grew up. You know, for me, is we have to start at the bottom. We have to start at the people that, that have limited resources, uh, limited opportunities. The schools that they attend are overcrowded, underfunded. And for me, whether you're a poor white in Appalachia or poor African-American in Detroit or, or Latina in, in Southgate in Southeast LA, these are the type of individuals and their families that, that, that need that extra help because of the inherent uh, institutional barriers that they, that they experience that makes it almost impossible to get to the university. Right. You know, like where I grew up, going to high, graduating from high school was like, it was like going to college. Like no, people didn't graduate high school. It was a great achievement. Yeah, we had like a, we had like, we killed a pig, we had like a mariachis and everything because nobody graduated high school. So when I was growing up, all my, the people that I looked up to, like the older people, they all dropped out. Did you have people persuading you not to go to college? No, it wasn't like that. It was, it was just there was no there was no one that looked like me that went to college. So I didn't see there was no model to to emulate. Um, I mean, even the the teachers at my elementary school they were all nice and I, I liked them, 
I mean, my, my sixth grade teacher, Ms. Rose, I used to call her Ms. Ronald McDonald because she had red hair. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. She didn't know. But she was my favorite teacher of all time. But all the kids that, that went to that school, they were all from the projects, housing projects, Ramona Gardens in East L.A. Everybody was poor. We were all on welfare. 95%, there was no, like, there was no father in the household. Uh, so a lot of the times it was like going to school was like not getting beat up. You know, it was like how to avoid that. It wasn't about learning. It was, and, and the, the, the teachers were nice and they were, they had good intentions, but they didn't have any expectations, you know, for us because they saw the previous generation, you know, struggle to, to get in, like I said, just to get in a high school diploma. So are there urban planning solutions uh, in addition to educational solutions? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, we, have, we don't have as much, um, but we have some urban planners that get into the, the area of education in terms of the schools uh, and looking at like also the built environment and, and how to even produce or invest in schools where you have green spaces, where it's healthier to, um, for kids to learn. Uh, like the school I went, it was all asphalt. You know, there was no, there were no trees. Because um, I know so many uh, people, when they're choosing a community in which to live, will look at the school right. system and its quality as a very important factor. Oh yes, definitely, definitely. Like in in Santa Monica, for example, you can go to. There's a certain area of Santa Monica is very affluent, and you can go to buy a home that's two, four million dollars, and the schools are great. But going it's like a private school, but it's a public school. Mm -hmm. But because of the area, you're literally buying into like one of the best schools in, in, in the area. Or we go to San Marino here, not that far from us, like the average home is $4 million. They have one of the best high schools in the country. But the, to buy into that neighborhood, you know, you have to be a multimillionaire. So in reality, your kids are getting that type of education. So you get what you pay for yes. to some extent. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that doesn't guarantee that, you know, they're going to be brilliant or, or successful or anything, but it gives them a, that leverage that it gives them an advantage already. It's already inherent in, within the system itself. In the more affluent communities, even when the schools are public, you have the, you know, the, the campuses are, are beautiful. There's green spaces. The, the percentage of kids to the teacher, the ratio is low. Uh, so it's more conducive learning environment. And that, that's the type of school I send my son to because I didn't want him to experience what I experienced. And I didn't want him to figure it out the way I figured, like the hard way. And then I had an immigrant mother that pretty much, she was so, so driven and, and aspirational. And she, she pretty much kind of like inculcated in my, in, in myself that I could do whatever I wanted to do. So it's a lot of factors, you know. And, and then the fact that you know, I've been skinny all my life, um, my gang application was rejected. I couldn't defend the neighborhood. So if I would have joined a gang, forget it. It would have been, so there's a lot of factors uh, that, that kids that grow up in these type of neighborhoods, environments that they have to deal with that prevents them from, from excelling or prevents them go to the university uh, or prevents them from going to the university straight out of high school, like I did, you know? So I'm more like the exception with the rule, but I want to turn that equation around. You know? 
So what recommendation would you make to policymakers who are looking at this issue? Well, I would see that that they look at these communities not as, as problem communities, not as, as communities where there's hopelessness or, or looking at blaming the victim, right? So sometimes policymakers or the idea would be, wow, they're just not driven. They just don't value education. I mean, immigrants, poor immigrants value education more than anybody right. because they know, they know that how hard it is for them as immigrants to work in this country. And I tell this to students, and I just gave a talk at, at UCLA to some kids from Santa Barbara, and all immigrant kids, all poor kids will have heard this, this lesson that, that an immigrant parent would tell them at one point in their life is that, I want you to work hard so you don't have to work like me. I want you to work hard in school so you don't have to suffer like I do. And it, it, it is that mentality. And, and I think that, that we need, as the policymakers, the scholars need to tap into that. And I think we see it in our CSU system in which uh, they're constantly trying to make it college more accessible, yes, yes. both by expanding the number of uh, seats in the university, opening up online and hybrid courses, Saturday weekend right. uh, evening sessions so that folks have an opportunity to move up the economic ladder. And there's evidence that CSU does a good job of it. Oh, no, I think so. I'm a, I'm a big uh, supporter of CSU, and that's why I'm here. Yeah. And the CSU is proud to have you among its brethren. <laughs> okay. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much.